Welcome, everyone. This is the second lecture in a three-part series entitled God and War with Professor Mark Jurgensmeyer. I'm Mark Taylor from Princeton Theological Seminary, where I'm a professor of theology and culture. And I'm very grateful, as I assume all of you are also, that these lectures are being held. They are jointly sponsored by the Princeton University Public Lectures Committee and Princeton University Press. It's a special pleasure for me to introduce our speaker tonight because while I've only ever so briefly met him before, I feel I know him a bit more from his important works. Last night, the introducer listed them off and named the 200 and announced the 200 and some articles. Tonight, per permit me just a, a brief moment to call attention to one of these. It's one that many of you perhaps know of, and perhaps it's the reason you're here tonight. I don't know. It's his book, Terror in the Mind of God, The Global Rise of Religious Violence, published by the University of California Press in 2000. Appearing just one year prior to the 9-11 attacks of 2001, many of his words in this book were, if not prescient, surely heavy laden with meaning now. I remember especially his analyses of terroristic acts in this book in a section looking at those acts as theatrical, as symbolic, and making arguments for how important that perspective is. And I remember also a sentence in the middle of that book that read, the World Trade Center Towers this is before 9-11, are in their own way as American as the Statue of Liberty and the Washington Monument, and by assaulting them, activists put their mark on a visibly American symbol." End quote. Well, our lecturer is not only thinking deeply, but thinking forward, tapping, as we heard last night, historical, sociological, and religious theory, comparative analysis across cultures and continents, in order to equip us for thinking about crises in our present and perhaps in our future. This is, as I say, the second lecture of a three-part series. It will conclude tomorrow night entitled God and War. I'm pleased to present again Mark Jurgensmeyer from the University of California to address the theme of War on Terrorism. Thank you very much, and thanks uh, to all of you for your courage and perseverance in returning tonight. Uh, or if you're newcomers, uh, I hope you'll stick around. There's lots to talk about. Uh, this is the second in a series of lectures on God and war. The first lecture was on the idea of war, the odd appeal of war. This lecture is an attempt to try to ask the question, are we currently at war? Now, in the first lecture, I made a distinction. Ah, there's a way of turning down the lights. Ah, you found it. In the first lecture, I made a distinction um, uh, between war and the use of military force. And I talked about war as an alternative reality based on the moral absolutism of social conflict. The distinction I was making here is that there's a difference between war and the use of military force. And I was focusing on war in the mind rather than more 
war in the finger of a trigger of a gun. I was looking at the idea of war. The idea of war is a response to a profound social anomaly, an inventor, a situation that seems to threaten not only the physical existence of a people, but also their framework of social meaning. I was trying to understand what would produce this extraordinary idea of war, this absolutely dichotomously opposite notion of reality than the civil order that most of us take to be a part of normal society. War, I concluded, was a way of responding to social disorder by imagining an alternative order. Yes, war in a strange kind of way is a kind of order of reality, a grand encounter between good and evil enemies in which the evil is ultimately destroyed and the good will and the good will reign supreme. Now the question is whether this understanding of war describes the mindset that is shared by many around the world at this moment of history. Or to put it more simply, are we at war? This was a question that the wife of a friend of mine asked me shortly after the September 11th attacks. I was on the East Coast at the time, actually at the University of Pennsylvania, giving a talk on religious terrorism. When I, uh, the news came about the horrific acts in Manhattan, just a few miles from where I was at the time and where you are now. But when I returned to lovely, sunny, distant Santa Barbara, the wife of a friend of mine collapsed in my arms, tears in her eyes, wondering, are we at war? Behind her tears was a profound sentiment. The implication of her question that was anything that is forceful and dramatic as that must have been part of something more impressive than simply a rogue band of militant Muslims with a cleverly lethal scheme to create a dramatic symbolic attack. Yet, in truth, it was basically that. The Al-Qaeda movement was just a small gang of several hundred activists. It was not a huge international army that was poised against America's military power. Though you often saw talk about the new Pearl Harbor, it was not that. It was oddly inappropriate. The, yes, they were both sudden, dramatic, and surprise assaults, but the organizations behind them were vastly different. The military might of the Japanese enormous empire spread throughout the world and contrasted with a small but vigorous and perverse group of activists in the mountains of Afghanistan. The idea that such an extraordinary act had been undertaken by a small and relatively insignificant group seemed absolutely impossible to fathom. It must be something bigger than just a random act of terrorism. It must have been, in the words of the wife of the friend of mine who collapsed in my arms that day, it must have been war. Now, what does it take to think of this as war? Not long after the attack, I was at Emory University in Atlanta, and I posed this question to a group of students in a class where I was a guest speaker. All of them were convinced that this was an act of war. So I asked them, 
Well, what if it had been slightly different? What if, what, j- j- just what if the planes that flew into the side of the towers didn't bring the towers down, they kind of crashed into the side and they kind of stuck there? And all of those tragics that turned out, tragically guided as it turned out, firemen and police personnel that raced up the stairway were able to put out the fire and bring people to safety. What if that had happened? Would that have been war? Well, they said they didn't know. I mean, it was, uh, they didn't know. It was, it was pretty odd, but well, they, they weren't sure if that would have been war. What if it had happened at night? What if we hadn't seen those images that so graphically uh, movingly portrayed around the world. What if we, it, it happened when nobody saw it and, and the towers had just crumbled away without anybody seeing them and we didn't have the images to reflect on? Would that have been war? Well, they, they weren't sure. It was the magnitude of the event, one of them said. He cited the importance of the World Trade Center and the Pentagon as public institutions, and the number were killed. And I pointed out that the buildings had been targeted before. After all, I had interviewed one of the men who was involved in the conspiracy to bring down the towers in 1993. And if they had been successful in 1993, it would have been a far different kind of event. If the load of fuel oil and fertilizer that Mahmoud Abulima and his colleagues had packed into a Ryder rental van and parked into the, one of the sub-basements of the World Trade Center had been a larger load and placed in a slightly different location. It would not just have created a big blast in one of the sub-basements and a few people killed. It would have brought down one of the central columns of one of the buildings and it would have come down immediately, not the hour or so that mercifully allowed tens of thousands of people to escape on that fateful day in, on September of 2001. And the attack was in high noon, not early in the morning. High noon when both buildings were filled with people. Some 25,000 people work in either of the two towers. 25,000 and 25,000, another 25,000 visiting at any given time of day. And in 1993, this was at high noon. Start adding up the numbers. That comes to about 100,000. And then, as you see, the towers, if they had fallen the way they were designed to fall in 1993, would not have imploded the way they fell in, 19, in 2001. That is destroying only the structures within the footprints of the two buildings, but rather they would have fallen sideways. The first tower would have fallen into the second, and like trees falling in the forest, the both towers would then have tumbled to all of those tall buildings in the shadows of those two enormous edifices. I estimated at least another 100,000 people would have been killed if the buildings had fallen the way they had planned it in 1993. Over 200,000 people would have been killed in that event. When I mentioned that to the class, they said, oh, well, that really would have been war. But it wasn't, because they weren't successful in 1993. The buildings didn't fall. Was it war? My students were puzzled. They tried to understand whether it was the 
number of casualties, and yet they thought about that a moment and said, well, a natural disaster would have killed at least that many. Maybe the complexity of the bombings, and yet we recognize that the same group had carried out raids on attacks on two different American embassies in Africa just a couple years earlier. An equally complex kind of attack, and the Bojenka plot that was planned by Ramzi Youssef would have destroyed 12 airplanes as they were flying over the Pacific, even more calculated and complex plot. And that wasn't war. Why was September 11th different? My students puzzled. One of them finally said, well, it was because, because it worked. Another said, well, because it was here. And then there was a silence. And they all seemed to realize that somehow none of these answers, although perfectly good ones and true ones, none of them were really convincing Until one woman said, it was, just, it was just so crazy to see those towers falling like that. It was just so crazy. It had to be war. It seemed to me in that sentence we were getting somewhere. The craziness of it all. Not just the act itself, but the perception of the act the way it was experienced by those who witnessed it. Not what they did, but the way we felt about what they did. That was war. The enormity of the impact of the public consciousness, the overwhelming sense of vulnerability and humiliation that stretched all the way from Manhattan to Santa Barbara was a part of something that was more fundamental and deep in human experience and simply a political act. It was war. But if it was war, I said, it, there had to be enemies. In the case of Pearl Harbor, we knew the Japanese were behind it. We knew they had an army. I said, what if in this particular case it turned out that this event, as horrible and horrific it was, was not carried out by a huge international army or a terrible terrible, you know, terribly organized network of activists, but rather kind of a ratty band of terrorists living up in caves and connected to a few of their comrades and email organizations in different parts of the world who were just extremely lucky in carrying out this act. What if it turned out that that was the case? And there was an eerie silence because they knew to some extent that was in fact true. And if it was just simply a tawdry band of miscreants, it would seem to present less than a compelling case for war. But what about all their supporters, several students asked in response. There's more to this than just Al-Qaeda, another student said. It had to be. And then yet another gave the definitive answer. Well, wasn't this really the first salvo in the war with the Muslim world? It was a chilling response, this idea that it wasn't just this little ratty band of terrorists, but rather this larger encounter with the Muslim world. It was chilling because it 
took the lid off a nasty little secret that much of the American public, in fact, blamed the Middle East in general and Islam in particular for implicitly supporting acts of terrorism. This so widely held but seldomly publicly expressed point of view was all the more disturbing in that it had all the earmarks of being a self-fulfilling prophecy. In fact, soon after that classroom conversation, we were indeed at war with a Muslim country, Afghanistan, and then only shortly after another one, Iraq. And indeed, many in America still perceive this as a war, not just against a certain group of ratty little terrorists, but a certain kind of political religion, a war against radical Islam. This discussion in the classroom showed me is that the idea of war is a powerful thing, something based on the most potent of human emotions, the fear of uncertainty. It became clear to me that whatever else seemed to justify the act of war was always initially a response to a profound sense of public disorder, something unthinkable, something deeply out of place. In the case of September 11th, the idea of war was a response to something that was just unbelievable, an anomaly in our human experience that signaled a disturbing threat to our sense of order that had to be understood some way and most easily through war. Now, interestingly, though, on the day of the attack, the first headlines of the newspapers mention nothing about war. I've done a survey of the headlines of the newspapers on September 11th, and I've discovered that none of them, none of them, initially described the attack on the World Trade Center towers as an act of war. The New York Times simply said the U.S. was attacked. Washington Post and other newspapers described the act <clears throat> as a terrorist hijack and an attack of airliners, but no mention, no mention of war. The Detroit News called it terror. San Francisco Chronicle said the U.S. was under attack. But in those, none of these cases that they use the word war. Honolulu Advertiser, describing America's bloodiest day, compared it with the Pearl Harbor attack being Honolulu. I think my favorite was the headlines from the San Francisco Examiner that simply said, showing a picture of the attack, the bastards, but not war. Apparently within the White House, the inner circles, there was also a discussion about how to frame this and the response, American respond, the response to it. There are not many good analyses of what the discussion was within the White House this day. One of them is Bob Woodward's book, Bush at War, where he talks about the um, initial response to Colin Powell, who was in South America at the time, as one of looking at the international network of insurgents and trying to immediately contact international colleagues, uh, foreign affairs ministers in other countries to see if they could 
do something quickly to search down and root out the terrorists, those who were culpable of, of these acts. But it was Bush, according to Woodward, Bush himself who immediately, viscerally, instinctively thought of war. Later on that afternoon, Bush came on television. The first statement of the White House to the nervous public. In a very short statement, in four times he described the acts as evil. And this initial statement in, in a passing reference in one of the paragraphs, he described America's response as a war on terrorism the first time he would use that phrase. And the following day, he raised his assessment even a notch higher. On that day, he said to the American public on another television broadcast that the attacks were more than acts of terrorism, the president said. They were acts of war. The first time, then, that the newspapers used the word war in their headlines was in quotation marks. It was lifting the phrase from the president's speech, headlighting the newspapers now as framing and interpreting what had happened, not just as an act, acts of, of a few, of a brigand band of a kind of rogue group that needed to be sought out, needed to be brought to justice, to be hunted down like the criminal thugs that they were, but it was an act of war. Later that afternoon, Fox News and other News outlets began the logo, the war on terrorism, which interestingly in many cases became uh, shortened simply to war on terror, which is interesting in that it shifts the struggle from persons to a perception, the, the feeling of terror itself, which is what we were struggling against. And this has become the dominant phrase ever since, with the exception of a brief period of time this last summer when there was an attempt within the circles of the White House and the Defense Department to reframe the war on terrorism as a struggle against radical Islam, a phrase that never quite stuck. The war on terrorism, it has been, and the war on terrorism or terror, it still is. So the way in which the event was framed as an act of war was provided to the American public by its president. Would it have been different if a different president had been in power, if it, Colin Powell or someone else? You know, I sometimes imagine what a speech would have been if President Jurgensmeyer was in charge that day on that fateful moment and tried to frame this as, as a response to an act of a small criminal band that needed to be searched out and brought to justice through an international coalition, one perhaps orchestrated by the United Nations, rather than an act of war, which we were of one of the bilateral enemies. Maybe, and maybe that would have worked, maybe not. My sense and that response that I had from the wife of the friend of mine was there's something visceral, not only in the mood of the president, but among the people, American people itself, that something so odd, so horrible, so 
absolutely unexpected out of ordinary experience, had to explain, be explained in extraordinary ways. It had to be explained through war. War, as we discussed in the first lecture, helps to explain things. It helps people feel more secure. It helps to, in a curious kind of way, and for something that legitimizes killing and itself is enormously chaotic and disruptive, it provides, at least for those who perceive the necessity of it, a kind of sense of certainty about the world because it places cruel anomalies and unusual events within a context in which they make sense, in which they could be understood. People are able to imagine why horrible things are happening in the world and what causes them it is war and the enemies that are within that act. The problem, of course, with the World Trade Center bombings is that the enemies in this case were not very impressive. This little brigand band within a cave in the Afghan mountains, this wasn't going to do it. This wasn't going to do it. I knew that somehow the Al-Qaeda band had to be seen in different terms if America was to legitimately sense an enemy of the power and the status and the proportions to challenge the greatest superpower on earth. And yet it couldn't be the entire Muslim world that was simply a bit large of a stretch. Really even, even for a gullible American public, that wasn't really quite conceivable. They needed a more specific target, one that could be easily identified and held accountable, one that was more imposing than a small network of anti-American activists. And so on September 11th, I watched with some curiosity, wondering on what Bush was going to say, remembering that the last time there had been a significant al-Qaeda attack, Bill Clinton had responded by shooting some missiles into sheep fields in Afghanistan and bombing a pharmaceutical in Sudan. Uh, not very impressive, but he did something. It was clear that the magnitude of the attack responded needed something more. And yet I knew that there was no easy way to get at these guys. There was nothing that we hadn't already done. There had already been an al-Qaeda network within the State Department. I talked with those people. I knew that they had tried very hard to locate the al-Qaeda network, to pinpoint Osama's headquarters, that Bush couldn't do it. He certainly couldn't do it overnight. And yet he had to stand in front of the American public and say something that would show that we were going to do something in response to such an act. He needed an enemy. As I listened, there was a phrase that came up in his speech that afternoon, and I quote, We will make no distinction between the terrorists who committed these acts, the president said, and those who harbor them. Bingo, I said to myself. That's it. He's going to attack Afghanistan. Why? Well, of course, indeed, they had harbored the Al-Qaeda network, but more than anything else, because we could. And given the government's limited possibilities for an enemy to attack after 9-11, 
some focus that would give some sort of sense and satisfaction to the American public that we're actually doing something and that there were as an enemy out there to, uh, to respond to, uh, Afghanistan was not a bad choice. I mean, Saudi Arabia was, of course, the home of bin Laden, and most of the people who were, in fact, the hijackers, but we could hardly attack Saudi Arabia. They were our friends, after all, and bin Laden had turned against them. Sudan no longer harbored bin Laden, but Afghanistan had. And moreover, if Taliban regime was a pretty unsavory little bunch that was genuinely disliked and distrusted even within the Muslim world, there were only three countries that even recognized the legitimacy of the country at that time, and even this support quickly vanished after the United States lift, linked uh, Afghanistan with September 11th. So although no one could claim that the Taliban was directly responsible for planning and conducting the attack, it had an indirect responsibility. There was this friendship between Mullah Omar and Osama bin Laden, a kind of family relationship uh, through a marriage. Uh, he had befriended Osama, had received money from him, he'd given his operation safe haven. It was clear that much of the rest of the Taliban distrusted this. Many of the religious leaders in Afghanistan renounced these foreigners, the Al-Qaeda, and wanted Afghanistan to have nothing to do with them. But no matter, it gave the U.S. something to bomb. And so they did. Afghanistan became a theater of war, an almost too easy target because within a matter of months, Afghanistan was firmly in, <clears throat> the Taliban was deposed, it was firmly in American hands, an occupation government was set up, which was still very much in power. And yet the fever of war continued, and we continued to need an enemy in which to respond. In a curious kind of way, for many of the American public, Iraq filled that missing bill. It became the enemy that Afghanistan no longer was. Now, no matter that there really wasn't any connection between Saddam and Osama, and even President Bush ultimately and grudgingly would accept that fact. But to many of the people who supported the war initially and continue to do so, and many of the people who volunteered for service in that war, that attack on Iraq was a kind of retaliation for September 11th. In his speech on the eve of the military operation that would bring back down the Iraq government, the specter of the terrorist attacks on September 11th were evoked. He very carefully didn't make the assertion that there was an actual connection between Osama and Saddam, but to most of the people, the point was clear. There was something, like a kind of vague, in court way, within this nasty network of Middle Eastern antipathy towards America that was all connected and which made Iraq a legitimate enemy in this war on terrorism that began on 9-11. Some Americans made an even more direct link. There's a dramatic moment during the fall of Baghdad on April 9th when an American soldier, Lieutenant Tim McLaughlin, crawled up on top of the enormous 
statue of Saddam in Fardus Square, and as the television's cameras rolled, he proceeded to place an American flag over the statue's head in kind of the style of an executioner's hood. Now, quickly, his superiors had him yank the flag down, realizing this was not <clears throat> the kind of press that they wanted to have, and yet the young soldier later explained that the flag held great significance. This flag had previously flown over the Pentagon on September 11th, and it had been given to him, and he brought it to Iraq very carefully and was waiting for just such an occasion. He wanted to make the statement in some way that sacrifice of the American people on September 11th at the Pentagon and the World Trade Center was being repaid. And the viciousness of that anti-Americanism of the Middle East uh, was being, uh, was having its revenge. And for him, it's clear that this was a great experience of retaliation. Curious thing, the idea that war can bring a sense of clarity, a sense of completeness, a sense of, of wholeness out of disorder, of unwholeness. I mean, it's a curious thing considering the extraordinary disruption which war itself brings. And yet it seems to me that at least in the mind of those who initiate it and support it, there is this sense that war makes sense. It does bring clarity. It does bring confusion uh, to a completion. It does make things whole. It's an argument that I've heard in, interestingly, not only from those who support the war on terrorism and the war against radical Islam in whatever form that they imagine it, but in a curious kind of way, long before 9-11, it was a point of view that I heard from those who supported the jihadi war, supported the acts of terrorism in the first place. I think in the first lecture I told you about an interview that I had in the federal penitentiary in California, in Lompoc, maximum security prison with a man who was involved in the 1993 bombing of the World Trade Center and was a part of the far-flung, loosely connected Al-Qaeda network. In a series of interviews with Mahmoud al-Budlima had some sense of what, for him, was the necessary link between religion and politics and between religion and war. Now, when I interviewed al-Budlima, and this is the only picture I could find of him, one where he is actually supporting William Kunstler, the lawyer on his uh, shoulders, who was able to uh, release him from the uh, a trial of, uh, release him from an accusation of being involved in the assassination of Mayor Kahane, uh, the Israeli um, rabbi uh, in downtown Manhattan, whom Abilima probably was implicated in that. But he <clears throat> was not able to get clear the rap from being involved in the attack on the World Trade Center. And that was this conviction that I, in connection with this conviction, that he was incarcerated. And the reason why I'd visit him in prison. Abilima was a tall, freckled, uh, red-haired Egyptian. They called him Mahmoud the Red for that reason. Uh, 
kind of gregarious, outspoken, um, easy to talk with. If you happen to be sitting next to him on a bus, you could talk forever. Uh, and there would be nothing peculiar. Certainly you wouldn't imagine him to be a terrorist, whatever you imagine that to be. Until the subject of religion and politics came up, and then there would be a kind of intensity that would come over his face, and he would say, Mr. Mark, he said, as he said to me, you just don't get it. Your people are like sheep. Your media are clouding you from understanding what is the truth about what is going on in the world. The world is at war, Mr. Wark. There's a war between good and bad and truth and evil and religion and unreligion. And your government is part of the enemy. You just don't see it. You people, Abulima would say to me, are like sheep. In his view, the war is already going on. And yet Abulima didn't always hold this point of view. He was politically active in Egypt. In fact, he was involved in, accused of being involved in the assassination of Sadat. And for that reason, he uh, was one of many activists who fled to Egypt and went to Europe. But then he told me in Germany, he had a kind of falling away when he lived there. He began, he became kind of seduced to the easy virtues, the easy life of of the modern West, as he told, described it to me, he said he got interested in alcohol and women and, and drugs, and he said, and he fell away from the path. And I said, well, what brought you back? He looked at me and he said, he told a story. He said, <clears throat> you know, we have a parable in the Middle East about, about a lion that was raised by sheep. I think I told you this the other day. And when he didn't know that he was really a lion until he went to the water, and when he saw his reflection, he saw that he was indeed a lion. He said, and that's what Islam showed to me, Mr. Mark, that I'm not a sheep, I'm a lion. So for him to accept the jihadi ideology was to accept a view of the world uh, at war a view that somehow gave meaning to his life and made sense of the world around him. It was a war that he thought America had started. He said, you look at you, you're a terrorist nation. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, look at the... He said, you... I had pointed out to him that if the buildings had fallen the way they had planted in 1993, over 200,000 people would have been killed. And he said, without blinking an eye, that's almost exactly the number that the Americans killed in Hiroshima in their act of terrorism. He'd already made the moral equation in his mind that the Americans, in their terrorism, in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, killed hundreds of thousands. And that's the kind of terrorist power with which he was dealing. Abilene also told me that he thought that the attack on the Oklahoma City Federal Building, which after all nobody accused him of being involved in, the trial of Timothy McVeigh was going on at the time when I interviewed Abilene, he said that that was also, he thought, an appropriate response to the American, America's terrorism. It was a way of waking up the American people. He said, you wonder why people bomb buildings, he said to me. Uh, reading my mind. It's not that they have no reason. They want to let you know that there's a war going on. 
and that the government is the enemy. And then he sat back and smiled and he said, and now you know. We got the message. And the message was one of war. I believe uh, admitted that this was not an idea solely of his, that he really was grateful for a whole lineage of Muslim thinkers that go back in Egypt and Pakistan, Said Allah Madudi in Pakistan, who argued that the creation of Pakistan as a separate secular nation state was simply antithetical to Islam. He created the Jamaat-e Islami, a religious party in Pakistan, largely to oppose what he thought was the attempt by Western powers to create the secular nation state framework within the South Asian context, within the Muslim world. And Maududi's point of view, the Western political model had little relevance to Islamic culture. In Egypt, Hassan al-Banna, and then the great thinker Syed Qutb, uh, expanded on this notion of the religious necessity of political resistance to Western influences the Muslim world, seeing that the political structure of the West and what we imagine to be a normative secular society in political terms to be not just a, uh, an imposition of a, a Western political artifice, but, a, but the uh, attempt to try to corrupt and undermine the very framework of Muslim society, culture, and thought. It's interesting in that Qutb himself had studied in the West. He was studied educational administration, and, but his American experience only convinced him that what we were out and what we were after was no good for the Muslim world. It was a framework of reference that was then expanded on by Muhammad Faraj, uh, who, like Qutb, was ultimately condemned by the Egyptian Gulf, uh, government and executed, put to death for their beliefs. And Faraj's tract, political tract, first published in a newspaper and then as a little booklet, The Neglected Duty, he argued that jihad was a neglected obligation in the Islamic world, that the proper response to this kind of Western corruption, both political and culture, was to take up arms and to try to change things, if necessary, by force. So this idea of warfare announced by Salafi reformist thinkers and Deobundi thinkers such as Maududi, Albana, Qutb, and Faraj were all then revived in the rhetoric of Osama bin Laden, who in his fatwa of 1996 is remarkably similar to the line of Salafi thinkers characterized by the writings of uh, Qutb. And like him, bin Laden identifies not only Western influences as a sinister force, but also the political leaders who are their agents. So in his view, Western-leaning Muslim thinkers, Muslim leaders like the Saud family and Egypt's Mubarak are simply pawns in the evil designs of an attempt to control the Muslim world. So in his view, and in the view of these radical thinkers, the West's war against the Islamic world was begun as many years ago. There was a moment in Osama bin Laden's uh, speech uh, 
that tape-recorded message that was replayed on Al, uh, Al Jazeera television right after 9-11 when he was talking about how the West had corrupted the Muslim world for at least 80 years. And I was trying to think, 80 years? What happened 80 years ago? And then it dawned on me, of course, the fall of the caliphate, the end of the Ottoman Empire. So his mind, the very creation of nation-states, in many cases just lines drawn through the sand like the creation of Iraq, were inventions of the West and attempts to try to not only subjugate politically the Middle East, but also to corrupt and corrode the Muslim world. So their jihadi attacks, their acts of separatism, were simply responding in kind, but more importantly, attempts to try to wake up, especially the Muslim world, to a war that they thought was already existing. So these acts of terrorism were meant in their minds to be wake-up calls. There were attempts to try to shatter the kind of calm uh, ignorance of the American public, but even more important from their point of view, to try to marshal and rally the forces within the Muslim world, resist what they perceived to be acts of, of oppression and the powerful, and to show that the powerful American established was vulnerable. In a sense, they were successful. September 12th showed that, and not just by September 11th, the fall of the towers, but by September 12th, by goading the American public, the American president, into thinking in the way that they thought, to seeing the world the way they saw it, as a world at war. So in a remarkable way, the success of September 11th was September 12th, the achievement of getting America to see the world as a world at war. It was this theme that is a response of another of, of bin Laden's fatwas, where he talked about the early presence of the European and American actions in the Middle East as a clear declaration of a war on God, his messenger, and Muslims, and his acts of violence, by implication, were merely responses to a great ongoing struggle. So September 11th was a great moment of victory for Osama. He got us to think of the world and the way in which he saw it. He got the Muslim world to see that the great Satan was vulnerable, and perhaps more importantly, he goaded us into military actions, which then by their very acts in Afghanistan and even more importantly in Iraq, were incitements and visible demonstrations of his view of the world at war. Remarkably, from bin Laden's point of view, American leaders adopted the jihadi global war terminology and the jihadi total world terminology. It dubbed bin Laden in a moment that must have been exhilarating success for him as the world's greatest enemy. Now, it's not that the U.S. was itself without any kind of ideological preparation for such a view of the war. As we know, the circle of people around the president, including Vice President Cheney, Donald Rumsfeld, Paul Wolfowitz, Richard Pearl, 
have for some years seen the Middle East as a kind of mess. They've seen this region of the world as uh, in a sense of chaos that needed for both economic and political reasons to be somehow controlled, somehow put into a sense of order, somehow made into what they imagined to be the normal family of nations. And so it was <clears throat> even on that fateful day of September 11th, Richard Pearl snuck a memo to George Bush and said, be sure to include those countries that harbor the terrorists when you talk about our efforts at retaliation. But there was no possibility that they could have achieved any kind of military action against the Middle East had it not been for 9-11. That gave for the American public that great anomaly, that great sense of disorder for which the image of war was viable and for which then military targets were achievable. And once the attack came and the idea of war took hold in the public imagination, it was easy to expand its purview to other parts of the world and incorporate other imagined enemies into its fold, and the war in Iraq then became the logical extension of the global jihadi war. Once war has been proclaimed, and even more important, once it has descended into the thinking of the consciousness of millions on both sides of the conflict, the image is not easily dispelled. This is especially so when casualties begin to mount. No leader would either, on either side would want to call off a war too quickly and risk the appearance that the lives of those soldiers and civilians caught in the crossfire were in vain. So by the middle of the first decade of the 21st century, the global jihadi war is well underway. On two sides, a significant number of people think of the encounter in the absolutistic images of warfare. The war on terror, the global jihadi war, is a contest between extreme enemies locked into non-negotiable engagement intent on mutual destruction. Not everyone sees the situation in such a way, but Still, so much of U.S. foreign and domestic policy and the calculations of international policy is based on the assumption that we are now in a battle of global proportions. The skirmishes in this kind of war are not often just the traditional scenes of battle, but they can also be the arresting images on television and the daily newspapers of bombings in Bali, Morocco, Madrid, London, or riots in France and violent protests against something seemingly innocuous as cartoons in a Copenhagen newspaper. Somehow, in some way, without quite knowing how and when it happened, the public perception of American, Europeans, and Middle Easterners have made a subtle but dramatic shift. Discontent has crystallized into fear, and fear has descended into a world of cosmic conflict. And alas, the answer to the question for this lecture is that we are at war. And if you return to the lecture tomorrow night, we'll address the question, what does God have to do with this?
again, Professor Jurgensmeyer will uh, take some questions. Do we have mics out on the floor? I guess not, but uh, let me encourage you to speak up um, and be brief and concise if possible. I don't quite know what Mailer's distinction was. Maybe you can help us out. Well, I mean, he didn't, he didn't elaborate. I took it to mean that you view the universe as having very clear moral values. That was one that was the part of it. Existential meaning more unclear ambiguity. Well, that's interesting. I would assume that the second kind of God is the God that can be a part of war. And, and the first kind of God is the God that's, that's not a war. But every religious tradition, of course, has both. Within every religious tradition, there's the religious kind of seal of approval for normative society, but there's also these extraordinary images of destruction and the role of divine power within it. And that's what we're going to explore uh, tomorrow night. You have mics, so let's go over here now. Uh, yes, can I be heard? Uh, sorry, Arthur Myram. I attended a, a seminar at Annenberg uh, School of Communications very recently, and one of the young assistant professors made a point that uh, uh, the 9-11 led us to war because it was just another big media event. And I know that you've shown a number of that the repetition again and again and again of the falling towers mm -hmm. uh, led him to say that sort of thing. And I rose from the audience to say to him, I think we might have overlooked something that could have been a big media event if, for example, our U.S. Navy had just had all the cameras going when the USS Liberty back in 1967 was attacked by the Israelis. It was in open water. The ship, uh, uh, the ship was attacked. Both our state and military departments, defense departments, contacted the Israelis, the Zionists, about this. And uh, everything stopped. And 30 minutes later, the attacks assumed again. Over 30 Americans were killed on American property. Uh, don't you think that if the media had handled that event, that the Twin Towers would have never fallen? Well, that's an interesting question. I mean, that, that if there had been the media trained on that particular event, <clears throat> it might have been perceived as war in the same way that 9-11 was so quickly perceived um, uh, by many of the American, American public. But, but as I tried to say, I'm, I'm real, I'm, I still think it, it, that first day, there was still some question about how to think of this. And it wasn't really until the framing provided for the president that this was an act of war that I think this really seized uh, the, the, this made sense in a way that uh, perhaps uh, it, it hadn't up until that minute. So I think you need both things. You need the, the visible, palpable image of extraordinary disruption of something normal in society, which that event that you described would have been. Uh, Pearl Harbor certainly was, and the World Trade Center certainly was. And then our way of thinking about it. Let's go to this gentleman here. Mm -hmm. I have one observation and then a question. The observation is, I wonder what your lecture would be like without slides. Is the emotional content 
of the slides something that is a necessary component to put your intellectual comments into a different context? That's just a comment. My question is, hmm, is there not a distinction between an act of war and the declaration of war? And let me indicate that with the 1993 bombing of the World Trade Center, and the 1996 Bin Laden declaration of war, neither of, and we, we could say that both of those were act of war as considered by the aggressors, by themselves. They saw that this was part of war, but it didn't wake up anybody. Right. And so then the question that I have is whether there, what the distinction is between the intent of the aggressor who commits an act and the response of the person who is the recipient of that aggression. Well, my just talking with those students in the classroom, I have the impression is it doesn't make any difference what the people intended in the first place. It's, it's how we perceive it and how we understand it and how we frame it. You're absolutely right that the, that the, we, we, Al Qaeda has been goading us for you know at least. Ten years before nine, uh, 2001, into trying to think of the world as a world at war, and we didn't bite the bait. And, and 93, of course, would have been much more horrific action. And my first response on seeing the horrible images in 2001, aside from my sense of fear about what I what I thought was going to be hundreds of thousands of people dead, and turned out to be—I mean, it was terrible for those people whose lives were lost, of course. But the fact that under 3,000 were killed, to me, seems nothing short of a miracle, considering the number of people who would have been there and would have been killed had the, had the incident happened differently and both buildings had come down immediately and fallen sideways. So I, it seems to me that it almost makes no difference what the intention was. It's the way we perceive it and then the way we frame it and the way we then assign uh, uh, the, the designation of enemy to those who might be involved with it. That really is part of the the larger uh, scenario, uh, the more important scenario of war. I'm sure uh, people in Iraq were rather startled to see that somehow Saddam, as much as he might have been disliked by America, was suddenly thought to be uh, an agent of al-Qaeda. I mean, to, to most Iraqis, I think it would have been a ludicrous assertion. And as I said, even in Afghanistan, the support for... Even within the Taliban, the support for uh, uh, bin Laden was really quite mixed. Probably the, the minority. Mullah Omar himself, of course, benefited greatly. But aside from him, most other members of the Taliban rather resented these foreigners. But, but, our, but our way of perceiving that network of enemies and that struggle uh, was really uh, our own... Uh, configuration on an, an attempt to explain this series of events. The perception of this act as being an act of war and the response is inevitably going to fuel an ongoing and growing of the conflict itself and thereby leading to further extension of the war. Yes, but it raises an interesting point. You know, as I said, if, if, if an artful uh, 
political leader at the time had framed this event differently. If President Jurgensmeyer had stood in front of the American public and said, my fellow Americans today, on September 11th, that a horrible thing has happened. We've been attacked in the most brutal and vicious way. But don't panic. Don't be concerned. This is not war. This is not a huge country with a large army. This is just a small group of miscreants. And even now, we are going to search down and find them and locate them. I have been in contact with some of the leaders of the Arab states. Even now, the president would say, I have received a message from our old enemies in Iran saying that they will join a struggle on the, on, against terrorism if it's coordinated by the United Nations. They did, by the way, and Iran was one of the first countries to contact the United States. Even Libya, which is also true, said that it would join this, uh, this struggle against terrorism. I have contacted the leader of, uh, of the of the leaders of the United Nations. They are forming a special tribunal. We will find these people and bring them to justice in an international court established especially for this purpose, made up of all the countries whose citizens perished in this in this horrible act. Some 80 different countries, and we will bring them to justice because this is a crime not just against the United States, but to the international community and civil society in general. And they will unite with us in bringing, finding these people and bringing them to justice. Now, that's what I would have liked to have said if I were President Jurgensmeyer in that particular location, that particular moment. How would the American public have responded? Would they have said, oh, that's not enough? I don't know. I don't know. But once it's framed at war, once we think in terms of war, how do we unwarify our perception of the world? And that's the issue that you raised, and I'm not sure I have an easy answer. Let's go here, and then we'll go to the other side. Thank you. Um, well, what President Bush did, I think, reflected what people perceived. Uh, I had just come out of the hospital on 9-11, uh, and um, I was awakened in the morning, said I better watch the TV. I remember that. I'd, uh, they had nothing for me to read there except one terrorist novel. And Could you hold I the mic? Is this on? Yeah, mm -hmm. it is, but you need to. Uh, sorry, I'm a little bit hoarse tonight. But uh, um, I think it would have been perceived as an act of war no matter who was president. Possible. Because <clears throat> it was a multiple attack. Uh, it just, the first question I had when I looked at it, and I, I'd been involved with uh, Factory Mutual and certifying buildings for fire safety and so forth, and I said, sprinkler buildings don't burn down. So when I saw this building burning down, I said, I guess they decided to do it today, because I remembered 1993. It's interesting what you say about uh, the 200,000 who could have potentially mm -hmm. died in that. So. God is merciful, you see. But uh, bin Laden also said that Allah was was uh, greatly, uh, he gave them a gift beyond what they could have expected. Osama being a civil engineer by training, uh, he expected the building to be badly damaged but not to fall down. It fell down because of New York City union rules and construction codes. But... Um, but it just seems to me that it, it looked like an attack uh, to everybody because there were multiple cities involved. And 1993 looked like an act of fanatics. But for some reason at this point, it just it feel like an attack. At least that's, that was my perception. 
And you're right, that was indeed the perception of many people. Let's go over to this side. And I, uh, I haven't really thought this out, but the, the, the question I'm wrestling with is, if we were um, intended to be awoken, and indeed were awoke, awakened to the idea that we are at war, I wonder if our actions in Afghanistan and in Iraq woke up the wider Muslim world, rather than this ragtag band, to the idea also that we are at war. So it was kind of a mutual awakening by a rather small, two smaller, small groups of either miscreants or leaders um, to kind of say, hey, everybody, we're at war. I'm not sure that the wider Muslim community would have thought of themselves at war maybe until they perceived the aggression in Iraq as war and then kind of said, oh, yeah, okay, we're at war. Is there a parallel there? Yes, no, I think you're absolutely right. That for the, Even though I think bin Laden wanted to awaken the American public, the way he was able to do it was by provoking American aggression in Afghanistan and, and Iraq in such a way that it was then perceived by many people in the Muslim world to be an attack on Islam. So in a curious kind of way, uh, Bin Laden's started the chain, the chain of events that then led to this fulfilling what in fact he had, uh, had wanted, and that is a, a, a strong support, and thank God not a united one, but a strong support from within the Muslim world from, for his point of a view that the uh, America has sinister and the, and the West in general has sinister designs on the, on the Western world and is, is able and willing to use military means in order to, to achieve it. And that, that uh, as I said yesterday in my discussion of, with the mullahs uh, that I talked with in Baghdad last year, uh, they are convinced that the reason why the U.S. is in Iraq is in order to uh, try to control Islam, to try to keep an Islamic revolution from happening. Uh, from trying to uh, keep Islam from coming to power. Uh, they believe that the U.S. has always supported Saddam. Uh, they believe that there was a secret uh, kind of collusion to keep Saddam in power. They hated Saddam. Uh, but they see uh, his uh, uh, demise not so much as a, a liberation for the Iraqi people, but, the way, but an attempt for America to take uh, over control directly from its puppet and run Iraq in a way that would uh, prohibit an Islamic revolution from coming to being. I know this may sound far-fetched, but all of the people I talked with in, in uh, Baghdad, these are Sunni uh, mullahs, uh, uh, share this point of view. They said, oh yes, this is a, they, they agreed, this is exactly why Americans are in. And it seems to me that this perception would not have happened had not this chain of events that was began with the uh, with the uh, um, bin Laden attack on 9-11 and then the American attack on Afghanistan and, and later in, on Iraq, which has fulfilled uh, in an extraordinary way the, the most visionary dreams and expectations that Osama bin Laden had about uh, the, the way he would like to see the culmination and fulfillment of uh, his uh, predictions about, about global war. So it seems that they didn't have enough with Afghanistan, and then they went to Iraq. Uh, where, where do you think this is going next? Do you think that this is like a runaway process? What needs to be done to take the pressure out of this uh, war-oriented uh, White House? I'm sorry, I didn't hear the question. Oh. The, the, the heart of the question was <laughs> okay, where sorry. is this going next, right? Oh, 
Yeah, basically. So not enough with Afghanistan. We are in Iraq right now. Where this is going next? Yeah, I, I, runaway I know. Process? This is, once you've let the genie out of the bottle, once you've let the war genie out of the bottle, how, how do you put it back? It's really very difficult. Uh, uh, in the last lecture when I talked about Vietnam, even at a point in which American leaders had decided this was really no longer a war worth fighting, there, there was no easy way to extricate themselves from the situation because it, they didn't want to look like losers. On the other hand, there was no way of getting out in a way that would not either precipitate more violence or, or look as if it was a great loss. And in some ways, the American situation in Iraq is, is perilously similar to that except, as today's news uh, indicates, increasingly what is happening in Iraq is an internal uh, civil war between Sunni and Shia elements, uh, and this in some ways may overshadow uh, America's uh, occupational presence there. Whether that's going to change the perception within the Muslim world of what's happening uh, remains to be seen, but I think uh, uh, certainly the news today is extremely interesting, and it may uh, significantly change the direction in which the insurgency takes in Iraq and maybe the character of Iraqi politics also. We'll finish up 10 minutes of questioning with one more question right here. I hope this doesn't throw you for a loop, really, but is American society, has it not been at war and therefore a war on drugs? We have uh, today such a polarized society. So isn't it, in essence, and I do take issue with what my perception is, that you vilified Bush, but you glorify the Abu, the Red, or whatever. It's my perception, which I hopefully you will correct. But is it not we Americans who are ultimately responsible because we cannot control our materialism. We cannot control ourselves to buy this oil, to be dependent upon a nation which, in terms of my lay reading of history, ever since the Turks or the Ottoman Empire was rejected in Vienna, and I think it was 1648, we've been warring ever since then. The religions of the Jews and the Christians and Islam have been doing this for 2,000 years. Mm -hmm. So until, in my view, Americans, each one of us, stops this masquerading, this left, this right, then we are perpetually going to have this. We're responsible. Everyone in this room is responsible. If we sit here and vilify Bush or the other side, they win. Perception. Well, thank you. Thank you for that statement. There's not really much for me to comment about, but I thank you for uh, that uh, insight. Okay. Mm -hmm. Well, I don't, uh, if you're implying that I'm taking some sides in this war, I don't mean to, no, no, I don't, I don't mean to imply that at all. I, I'm just trying to make an observation that 
that it's true that Bush's framing of this as warfare was a critical moment in the perception of, of this as, as war. I, I, this is simply my observation. Uh, it's also true that the, the framing of this as war by al-Qaeda activists were happening long before that. Um, I, I'm, I'm very, I guess, uh, kind of viscerally nervous about framing anything as war. And, and both, and I guess I would find both ways of looking at the world to be uh, uh, insufficient. Uh, but I, I don't mean somehow to to say that one side is right or wrong. It's interesting that, that that's, that's a characteristic of the idea of war, that, that there appears to be no way to talk about it in neutral terms. Uh, it, even to, to begin to talk about the world in such language implies that you are positioning yourself on one side or the other. And I think that's part of the peculiar character of that kind of construct of the human imagination, that there's a moral weight always in war. There's a right side, there's a good and a bad, there's an evil and, and, a, and a not evil side. And even to talk about it is to somehow position yourself in that, you know, on that, that moral uh, matrix. And I, I'd like not to as a scholar, as an analyst, but I can easily see how one would have that perception. By the way, I never responded to that issue about the slides. You know, I didn't put those put this together until just a couple of days before this event. I've written this as lectures for a book, and then when I found out that this was to be in this kind of venue rather than a small little seminar room with a, with a group of you know, uh, scholars, I thought, well, gee, uh, it might be nice to have some visual images to look at rather than looking at me. So, but do you think that changes the the presentation in some in some way? I. Right. If you don't see it, you don't uh, believe it. Yeah. Right. 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 Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. That's one of the reasons why I did want. To, I really wanted to have these visual images because they are so powerful, and and I think the visual images have framed so much of our discussion and our understanding of war. Okay. Uh, please return tomorrow night for the third on this, and thank uh, Professor Durgensmeyer.